This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Coronavirus is still overwhelming the American healthcare system, but here at the start of a new week, there is a growing focus on recovery and what it would take to get us out of the house, back to work, back to school, back to shaking hands again. A panel of four dozen economists, social scientists, lawyers, and ethicists agree now the country must dramatically increase testing before any reopening can safely occur. It's all part of what this bipartisan blue ribbon panel calls a roadmap to pandemic resilience. Danielle Allen is a lead author, and she joins us now from Harvard's Safra Center for Ethics. Dr. Allen, what's involved here? So big picture is we need a massive ramp up of testing, tracing and supported isolation. So finding people who are positive for COVID, tracing their contacts, warning their contacts, making sure they get tests. And then when people have to go into quarantine or be isolated and be treated, that they be supported in that, that there's job protection, that you get care packages, you have access to groceries and so forth during that period of isolation. What does it mean to ramp up like that? It means go really big. Um, It means 5 million tests a day not where we've been, which is more along the lines of about 400,000 a week, right? So it's really, we're talking about a big ramp up. It's a moment for can-do America to really show up um, and put itself to work. It almost sounds like you're describing a Marshall Plan for the United States. You could think of it as a Marshall Plan. You could also think of it as Eisenhower's highway infrastructure, um, building all those roads all all across the country. Um, And this is really going to take everybody. So we need the federal government, but there's a role for state governments and there's a role for city and county leaders and officials. So at the end of the day, that contact tracing is going to be something that happens on a local level. And this is a lot bigger than, say, just getting everyone's temperature taken at the door before they walk into the office. This is bigger than that. This is about disease containment, disease suppression. So really it's about identifying who has the infection so that they can be treated and isolated prior to spreading it. Um, One of the biggest challenges with COVID is the number of people who are asymptomatic carriers. So the estimates are ranging on that. So it's hard to zero in on the number, but 20 to 40% of people who have the virus are asymptomatic. And so one of the things we've all been really sort of banging our heads against is the fact that the CDC guidance is still that tests should just be for symptomatic people. That means you've got a whole lot of people out there spreading the virus around and we haven't been able to do anything about it. So far, it's been about three months since the country's been living with coronavirus and we've tested 1% of the population. Is this doable? It's absolutely doable. I mean, it's an interesting thing that everybody's sort of worried is it doable. The question is not whether it is, it's just how is it doable? That's the question we should be asking. And there are really two parts to the how. Um, so there's an existing supply chain for testing. It has a lot of choke points. Even with its existing choke points, it could definitely ramp up capacity. So with the existing supply chain of people who make swabs, the people who do the processing of tests and so forth, we ought to be able to get up to 2 million a day if we organize it well, if we kick in with some serious coordination driven by the federal government and federal procurement. In addition, though, there's an innovation pathway to scaling up even further. So one of the biggest choke points is really just those swabs that go up people's noses. Mm. And the fact that when you stick swabs up people's noses, everybody involved has to be in personal protective equipment, PPE. And that just gets to be a really big, complicated enterprise. The good news is that just this past week, Rutgers was approved for a spit test, and there are other spit tests in the work. So we ought to be able to have a way of doing testing that doesn't require PPE, 
Um, and that should permit um, a pathway to ramp up. But again, it's going to need investment and coordination from the federal government to take those things that are technologically possible and real already and scale them up to the level of mass production and mass distribution. Speaking of investment, how much is this going to cost? Well, when we think about costs, let's start by remembering what the current situation is costing us. So collective social distancing, collective quarantine is costing us $350 billion a month, okay? Got to remember that, $350 billion a month, and we've seen the massive unemployment numbers. What will this cost? $15 billion a month, okay? So over two years of doing this, you can imagine that we would have to spend somewhere between $100 and $300 billion. So $100 to $300 billion over two years, as opposed to what we're currently losing, $350 billion a month. Cost aside, or physical cost aside, what you're describing, though, is also going to take a spirit in the country, which at times, uh, especially politically, seems to, to be missing. You know, this disease knocked us all flat. There's just no question. It's sort of, you know, we're all part of a football team where we feel like key players have gotten concussions, ourselves included. You know, it really has taken us by surprise. It's taken us a while to get in gear, get our thinking going again, and so forth. Uh, we do need leadership. We need it in all places. So there's a role for the federal government, both the White House and Congress. Either the White House or Congress can set up this pandemic testing supply board. The governors are going to have to sketch out testing plans for their states and build out frameworks that really embed civil liberties protections, uh, non-discrimination protections, labor protections, a whole slew of things to make sure that these programs are fair and equitable and deliver health and well-being broadly for society. And then, as I said, mayors and county public health officials have to jump in and contribute too. You know, we just have to get past sort of blaming and finger pointing and be ready to pull together. It is a moment for national unity and for gathering together in that kind of can-do American spirit. Danielle Allen at Harvard University with a plan that unfolds in four stages. By June, all essential workers get tested. By July, 70% of the population goes back to work. By August, it's up to 80%. And the lockdown fully ends by March of next year. And it cannot come too soon, since coronavirus requires the kind of social isolation that we are now learning carries its own devastating health consequences. There's been an 800% increase in calls and text messages to suicide hotlines. We're joined from Columbia University now by Dr. Kelly Posner-Gerstenhaber, who's been recognized by the Defense Department for her work on suicide prevention Social distancing and self-isolation may be needed to control the virus, doctor, but they've unintended consequences for mental health. We cannot overstate the importance of this issue. Now, the, the good news is that social distancing does not have to be mean social isolation or being isolated emotionally. Did you know that there was a study that showed that loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day? It can actually be more lethal than heart disease and obesity. So right now, the, the risk that isolation brings is really tremendous, but it's something that we know how to mitigate. Everybody can be part of this part of this solution. And I think the most important thing we need to understand is that connecting, it looks very different than our usual connecting, but we can still be there for each other. The solution can't be as simple as simply calling somebody up and asking how you're doing. 
Well, it's not simply checking up on people. That's the first thing we need to do, right? We need to find the people who are suffering. We need to connect and make them feel connected because not feeling connected and feeling lonely and isolated is one of the things that makes them feel more stressed. But we also have to connect them to the care that they need right? We have to invest in mental health resources. And now with, with all the, you know, uh, understandably super focus in emergency rooms, et cetera, on, on, on the illness, on the pandemic, these things get, get pushed aside. And 80% of the texts come from people feeling lonely and isolated. 74% said it's because of the uncertainty, 67% because of the loss of routine. And, you know, that's something you can address a little bit. 40% financial distress, 44% fear about their loved ones, because now we're going to have to deal with grief as well, right? But 84% of the people who texted were identified as essential workers, it's okay to ask. People want to be asked. And we have to normalize that so we can find people and, and, again, connect them to the help they need and make sure that we continue the the psychiatric and psychological support that they needed before to take care of each other and mitigate this this very concerning increase in, in an understandable increase in people's mental health needs. Columbia University psychiatry professor Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber on the mental health crisis exacerbated by the coronavirus crisis. And our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is here to answer some of your questions about COVID-19. And we're going to meet someone who has recovered from the virus and is now trying to set up a way to donate plasma in hopes of helping others. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And with me, as always, is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, doctors are starting to make some important observations about the way COVID-19 is affecting those who are most critically ill. What are we learning at this point? Well, this is so important, Amy. We're starting to see these published case reports coming out. And what doctors are seeing in the critically ill ICU patients is kind of three different elements of severe COVID-19. One of them is the effects of just the viral infection. Then we're seeing the so-called cytokine storm, which is this powerful inflammatory reaction. And then they're seeing this mysterious and unexplained and atypical picture mm. of this clotting, these microscopic clots in the tiny little blood vessels, which in some cases are causing strokes, kidney failure. We've heard about amputation of a limb. So very unusual picture. But the key to medicine and science starts with making these observations. All right. And, and what do we assume we know at this point with COVID-19? 
Well, we think we have a good understanding of risk, and there are certain groups that we think are at higher risk, and we've heard this before. The elderly, people with obesity, diabetes, hypertension. Um, we think that children and teenagers are at lower risk, um, but again, and we can't emphasize this enough, low risk does not mean zero risk. Right, you're right. And, and this is obviously such a new disease, so what do we still need to learn at this point? Well, there is so much to learn, Amy, and I know that's frustrating for a lot of people to hear when they hear doctors and researchers and scientists say we don't know, but that is the honest answer at this point. So things that we're still looking at, what the best treatment of this infection is, why some people are becoming critically ill even without these risk factors and why others are not, and how the virus is actually behaving to cause this widespread inflammation, this microvascular vascular clotting cascade. We don't have a good understanding of that right now. And so as we're taking care of these patients, we're also studying and learning about how this virus is acting. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we know you will be back in just a bit. Well, it's been a little over three months since Senator Cory Booker suspended his presidential campaign, and now his focus has shifted to the coronavirus pandemic. Senator Booker is here to tell us now about how he is helping combat COVID-19. Senator Booker, thanks for being with us. And as former mayor of Newark, New Jersey, I know you know what it's like to be there on the front line. So what are you doing to help get cities and towns across America the support they need from the federal government? Well, I'm in the trenches of these negotiations yesterday uh, around the clock. My team is just working to try to make sure that New Jersey priorities are being met. And so the supplemental package looks like it's going to go forward this week, thank God, with a lot more money uh, for our small businesses here. And especially uh, working on a fund right now that's going to be set aside tens of billions of dollars for very small businesses that don't aren't banked and often are not taking advantage of the PPP program because they don't have real access through their financial uh, lenders. Uh, and then there's a lot more. We still have this crisis. Uh, we are seeing hospitalizations go down in New Jersey, but we are still in the midst of this uh, battle. So it was able to help win a lot of resources for our state hospitals and even as we look to the future for testing. So every single day, it's all hands on deck, troubleshooting for New Jersey from helping small businesses, to our larger nonprofits uh, and to our governor in accessing critical things like ventilators and protective equipment. Uh, talk a little bit about the recovery in your area as it pertains to lowering the number of COVID cases. What are you trying to do to help in that regard? Well, look, right now we are blessed that New Jerseyans are all making a patriotic choice. So many people are staying home and socially distancing. That has got to continue for uh, the foreseeable uh, near future. Uh, but we've got to do a lot more to be able to bend this case and focus a lot on populations that we see really getting hit by uh, this. So the nursing home work is really important. We need to have a lot more resources there, a lot more accountability and I'm on transparency after what happened in Andover, New Jersey. So working uh, closely with the governor on that, as well as we're seeing these racial disparities, we can leave no one behind uh, to the ravages of the COVID virus and to see the rates of death uh, so high amongst African-Americans and Latinos and across the nation with Native Americans as well. We are working really hard to get that data collection so we can analyze the problem, but even more so to get the resources we need. And then finally, I just wanna say, there's a lot of people hurting financially right now. I was able to win my, some of my priorities in that first package, like direct cash payments and 
increased unemployment insurance payments that are helping well over 80 percent of New Jersey families. I'm happy we had a standoff in the Senate with Republicans. We didn't blink and we're able to get those extra wins for our New Jerseyans. But it's still not enough. And I'm going to be going back to work, hopefully, on a, another uh, package to make sure that we get more money for state and local governments right now are in financial freefall at risk of having to cut critical services or potentially lay people off. We can't let that happen. And that's among the other battles that I'm going to have ahead of me. Yeah, we know you are working hard. Thank you for all that you do. Senator Cory Booker, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. As the pandemic continues, some official survivors who actually tested positive for COVID-19 are now stepping up to become heroes, donating antibody-rich convalescent plasma to those who are currently ill. New York-based photographer and COVID-19 survivor Diana Barrett has already donated plasma twice. She is also connecting other survivors to donate as well. So, Diana, thanks for being with us. And you actually believe you were exposed to the virus at a work meeting. Tell us what your recovery was like. So I was exposed on the evening of March 9th. There were only eight people at the meeting, and um, I'd only met them a couple of times before. So it's important to note that it was under the recommended 10 at the time, and there was no shared food or anything else. I presented with symptoms on the morning of the 13th, but I was very lucky, and I had a very average case and was able to manage it at home with Gatorade and Tylenol. Yes, I'm 100 percent better. That's fantastic. We are so happy for you. And for other survivors of the virus, you have a very empowering message. There is something they can do to help. They can donate plasma. And now you've founded Survivor Corps. Tell us what that is exactly. So Survivor Corps is a it's the fastest growing grassroots movement in America right now. And we are mobilizing people affected by covid. Those who have survived and also those who still have it to contribute to every scientific study, academic study, medical study in the country, including the donation of convalescent plasma. So we have created ourselves as a one stop shop where you just come to our either our Facebook group and we are launching our website today, SurvivorCore.com. And we update it daily and give you every resource on how that you, you with your new antibodies can help contribute to the cure. Help us demystify what that process is, what your experience was like twice. So first of all, you need to be screened right now to make sure that you no longer have the virus in your system, which most people are still showing up at 14 days. So the best time to go for this sort of plasma donation is it really the 21 to 28 day mark. And also your antibody levels are much higher then. So you're tested to see that you no longer have the virus and that you are positive for the antibodies. And then I made an appointment with the New York Blood Center, and it was just like giving blood even easier. It was actually one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. I felt like a superhero. It was 32 minutes from beginning to end, and um, you lie down. An expert phlebotomist put the needle in. I didn't feel a thing. I didn't have a bruise at all afterwards. And what they do is they extract your blood and there's this incredible machine that sits next to you that actually separates out the plasma, the yellowish liquid, the amber colored liquid where the antibodies are. 
from the red and white blood cells, the blood that we're used to seeing, and they put the blood right back in you. Mm. So you're ready to donate seven days later. With each donation, you can have the possibility to save three to four lives. It's incredibly empowering um, you know, to be able to use the antibodies that you naturally built up in your system to help others who are not able to. That is remarkable. It's truly a choice of life and death. We appreciate it. What yes. an incredible way to connect people who can do something once they've recovered. Diana Barron, we're so happy you're well, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Coming up next right here, when we come back, our salute to the essential workers, the university dining hall executive chef who keeps on cooking through these terrible times. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. I'm going to stand by you, even if I'm breaking down. We can find a way to break through. And we're back now with our salute all this week to the extraordinary essential workers helping the rest of us make it through this coronavirus emergency. Meet Carlos Mohammed of Montclair State University. Campus is closed, but there are still hundreds of key personnel and some students remaining, all relying on this executive chef. For survival. Hi, I'm uh, Chef Carlos Mohammed. I'm the executive chef of residential dining at Montclair State University in New Jersey, and I run three full-service uh, cafes on campus. We were closed for spring break, and the majority of resident students went home, which was kind of a blessing in disguise because that's when they decided to really shut down the campus and extend spring break for another week. The students that were still on campus, which we have about 400 students still on campus, our day-to-day number that we serve varies. We started doing things with smaller staff and limited food options, which we steadily decreased as the uh, pandemic worsened. We're also serving some facilities, workers, and police officers, and other essential personnel. Being on campus right now is uh, bit surreal. You know, I'm so used to uh, arriving in the morning and even if I'm arriving early, it's just constantly busy like a beehive. Parking lots are full, shuttle buses picking up and dropping off people everywhere and to come on now and just see none of that. It's just me coming on the campus to an empty parking lot and you know, walking into my facility where the majority of the facility is is shut down as if we're shut down for the uh, for the summer. It's uh very eerie. Working in these uh, current times, in this current situation, it is uh, a scary endeavor. You know, every day that we, we come out, we are taking some semblance of risk. Any type of interaction outside of the house is always kind of taking your life in your hands. I'm always fearful of bringing something home. But to be a part of these essential frontline workers give you some pride and we're really honored and grateful to be here right now to help in any possible way that we can. It's just nice to, you know, be here to help and to try and do our part. And he certainly is doing more than his part. We thank Carlos Mohammed, executive chef of Residence Dining at Montclair University, for all of his incredible and tireless work keeping people who need him most fed. 
Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now and we'll get straight to the first question. If a woman is pregnant and gets the virus but recovers, what effect might it have on the baby? Well, the short answer is we don't know, but there have been some published studies about the effects of COVID-19 in pregnant women. And interestingly, at this point, it really doesn't appear that there are any negative serious consequences for the fetus or the newborn, which is unusual for viral respiratory infections because we know pregnant women are at much higher risk for complications of, let's say, influenza pneumonia. Um, there was a recent study published in the New England, New England Journal of Medicine of pregnant women admitted to a New York hospital, and about 13% of them tested positive without any symptoms. In some labor and delivery units, that number has been as high as 25 or 30%. So we're, we're still learning about this, but right now I am reassured that it doesn't look like there's any major negative consequences to mother or baby yet. That's certainly positive news. All right, this next question I've heard a lot of people asking, is there a special face mask for those who wear prescription glasses? When I normally breathe, my glasses fog up. It is not easy. I hear you. And that's something that in the operating room, believe it or not, the same thing happens as people get used to how to breathe with a mask on or even a bandana or a cloth face shield. It really is about fit. It's about breathing more through your nose, exhaling and inhaling through your nose rather than your mouth and really trial and error, finding something that works for you with your glasses so that you get minimal fog, but still can cover your nose and mouth. But it's something that surgeons uh, have to deal with, too. This next question, we've been told to wash our clothes in hot water after a shopping trip. Many of today's clothes can't take hot water and hot dryers. Does it have to be hot to be effective? So in speaking to several infectious disease specialists, the thinking is that laundering is really all about the soap and not the temperature of the water. We haven't tested fabrics to see how long fomites or particles of coronavirus can survive in various temperatures on various types of fabrics. So the key is just the soap. I wouldn't get too um, focused right now on the temperature of the water. Okay, that's good to know. Next question, what timetable are we looking at for an antibody test to determine if we already had it but were asymptomatic? A lot of people who have felt fine throughout this are wondering, hey, could I have had it and just not known it? So you're going to be seeing a lot of antibody tests on the market right now, but the question is how accurate they are and whether they've been validated uh, and authorized even under emergency use by the FDA. Right now, there are only a few that have been. The other thing we don't know is for people who have had no symptoms or very mild symptoms, will they detect, will they be able to detect antibodies in their blood? And we don't know yet the level of those antibodies and how they may or may not correlate with protection. So still a lot to figure out about antibody response to COVID-19. And do we know in terms of timetables just how quickly and readily available any of these tests will actually be when we're hearing headlines like we'll need to be testing millions of people a day before we can get ahead of this? What does that timetable look like? Well, I mean, hopefully weeks and not months. But again, when you talk about scaling up to the tune of five to some epidemiologists are suggesting that we are able to do 20 million tests 
per day in this country. Um, remember also that certain people, depending on the test, may need to be tested, as we just said, more than once um, or sequentially or every two weeks or every four weeks. We don't know the answers to those yet. So um, it's going to be taking weeks and months, depending on the area in the country, the type of test, where it's located, how it's done. All of those logistics still need to be worked out and they need to be worked out pretty quickly. Right. So, you know, masks and social distancing are going to be a part of our long term existence, it looks like, at least until that all gets figured out. Dr. Jen, we appreciate it as always. And if you have questions for Dr. Ashton, you can submit your questions to her on Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. When we come back, the storied cheesecake maker getting a financial lifeline, but taking some heat for it. And then something every baby needs, whether there's a national health crisis or not, a fresh diaper, the helping hands on that when we come back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Some big restaurant chains are sparking backlash for receiving an infusion of coronavirus emergency funds aimed at small businesses. Junior's Cheesecake in New York, one of the businesses to receive some of that funding, and the CEO explaining the complex and rough road ahead. ABC's Diane Macedo with more. It's been almost 70 years since Alan Rosen's grandfather opened the first Junior's restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. He ran that restaurant with my father and my uncle his whole life, as my father did. Um, Thankfully, my father's not here to see this because this probably would have killed him. The company has now expanded to four restaurants, but with business now closed, 650 employees are furloughed. We thought about doing the takeout and the delivery thing, and I decided against it for the safety of our employees. Unsure how long the shutdown will last, Rosen applied to the Paycheck Protection Program, which aims to help small businesses pay their employees during the COVID-19 crisis. According to the Treasury Department, PPP loans will be forgiven if used to cover payroll and certain other expenses over the eight-week period after the loan is made and provided employee and compensation levels are maintained. Rosen says he's already received almost $2 million, but he says while he's approved for an additional $3.5 million, the government has now informed him all PPP funds have been fully committed. How much do you think this money can help you? It's a lifeline. Otherwise, we're closed. We're done. He's one of many business owners now hoping the program will receive more funding. But Rosen's also facing criticism after revealing he hasn't started paying employees with the money he's already received. He tells me if he started paying them now, they'd have no jobs to return to later. There's an impression that these loans will be used to pay people's paychecks while they are off at this time. Right. That is everyone's perception is that we get the money, we give it right to our employees. But I think it's almost irresponsible as a business person right now because we do that for a set period of time, eight weeks, right? We run out of money. Instead, he wants to use PPP funds to pay employees once he reopens in hopes that can help juniors stay afloat until it becomes profitable again. Just to repopulate this restaurant with food is going to cost us probably three to $400,000 per store. So even after you reopen, you don't think your business model will be sustainable unless you can use these funds to pay your employees then? And we still won't be profitable until these theaters and people are comfortable sitting shoulder to shoulder with everybody. These businesses will not exist that way in the future. I'm Diane Macedo in New York. 
And for more on the Paycheck Protection Program, we turn now to Reddit co-founder and managing partner of Initialized Capital, Alexis Ohanian. Alexis, thanks so much for joining us today. And we just mentioned that $349 billion relief program out of money. We've also heard, of course, that Congress may be close to an extension this week. But how will that impact those who haven't applied yet or are still in need? Yeah, well, you know, personally, I do hope that more money gets approved. Um, It is clear that not enough of our small businesses have been able to get access to these dollars yet. Um, Keep in mind, there are 30 million small businesses in America and just over 1.6 actually secured approvals through the program. So there are a lot more a lot more companies that need it on Main Street. Initialized Capital is an investor in Betterfin. That's a company that intends to help with this PPP loan. How is Betterfin going to assist in all of this? Well, the Betterfin Ready Relief Program, uh, you can think of it like software, kind of like a turbo tax uh, for this kind of loan application process, getting it done smoothly, quickly using software, uh, very user-friendly concierge service. And they've actually already processed uh, just over 400 PPP applications for free. Uh, now we just need more money in order to, uh, to get more of those going. Well, we certainly appreciate it. I know that those small business owners will appreciate a more streamlined way to try and get that money. Alexis Ohanian, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. All right, we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for some final thoughts on this Monday. Jen? Well, Amy, as everyone is focusing on reopening slowly, still top of mind is how to prevent or reduce risk of COVID-19. And I just read a really interesting article that was published in Redux Biology, research done at University of Virginia School of Medicine, all about this antioxidant molecule called extracellular SOD or superoxide dismutase. And it actually has been associated with protection in particular of serious respiratory or lung infections. So right now, as people are wondering, what else can we do other than social distancing, waiting for a vaccine to be developed, hand hygiene, et cetera, et cetera, one thing that almost anyone can do is start some aspect of exercise. This has been shown to be associated with an increase in this antioxidant molecule, and that can be protective. So again, if even if you're chair bound, you can start to exercise your upper body, get your heart rate up. That then produces some of this powerful antioxidant, which can help to protect us against lung infections. So again, not cause and effect, but a good association and something that we can all do. Dr. Jen, we always appreciate your advice. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Coming up next right here, when we come back, the helping hands making sure babies get one of the things they need the most, pandemic or no pandemic. Stay with us. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back. As COVID-19 changes daily life as we know it, people around the world have stepped up to help their communities and prove that we are all in this together. Well, our next guest is an actor and co-founder of Hello Bello, which has donated more than 220,000 diapers and wipes across the country since the start of COVID-19. Joining us now from Los Angeles is Dax Shepard. And Dax, thanks so much for being with us. You co-founded Hello Bella with your wife, Kristen Bell. You make affordable plant-based baby products even before COVID-19, giving back 
was always one of your brand pillars. We've been lucky enough to have your wife here to talk about it so many times. Why was that so important for you both? Well, uh, look, my, my wife's a very, very good person, much better than I, and she's dragging me along with her, thank goodness. But um, we felt like having had kids of our own and having access to every single product available and being able to afford every option that's available in L.A., we just thought it wasn't fair that the rest of the country would sometimes be choosing between, you know, healthy plant-based products and food items. We thought everyone deserved access to this, and so we... Um, started this company so everyone could have the same stuff we had. Yeah, and now the need is more than ever. As we mentioned, Hello Bello donating more than 220,000 diapers and wipes during this pandemic. You recently hosted a diaper drive-through for families in L.A. Tell us how that went. Well, you know, there's no real federal assistance programs right now to provide resources for buying many of the items that parents need. So we've teamed up with all sorts of great organizations, Baby to Baby, uh, Good Plus Foundation. And in L.A., we were working with Pathways L.A. in the Children's Bureau of Los Angeles. And we, we did a drive-through uh, diaper line where we actually gave 2,000 families over 56,000 diapers uh, and hand sanitizer. And they just drove through like you'd see these testing drive-through lines. Wow. And, and what, are you, what are you seeing, what are you hearing from your community? Well, I got to say, we've been shocked every time we host one of these things, just how many people are struggling and how many people are having a hard time getting products that they need for their kids. So I guess until you invite folks and see how many people show up, you don't have a real sense of just how many people are uh, struggling out there. Yeah, and you did it there in your home state of California, but I know you want to extend these drive throughs across the country. What can people do? Yes. So if people would uh, check out our social media, we want to give away uh, more diapers and products and hand sanitizers. So we would love for people to visit us on social media at Hello Bello and tell us what needs exist in their area. And um, we can try to get there and provide some help. That's that's remarkable to make it and extend it throughout this entire country. Dax Shepard, thank you so much for what you're doing and your wife, Kristen, as well. Please send our love to her as well. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me from my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News, honored winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.